So you're referring to the Sheraton move? Yeah. I had already gotten feedback from different people that there was a lot of disquiet and unhappiness in Bersatu with regards to Pakatan Harapan, with regards to uh, the standing of Bersatu among the Malay voters. And uh, this came to, you know, a bit of a hit, I think, uh, in October 2019, when Bersatu lost the Tanjung Piai uh, by-elections to BN at the time. And that disquiet was growing. Somehow Mahathir managed to put a stop to that at that particular point in time. But I was told that that kind of strategy would restart again. And, and it did. But I didn't think that... Hey, Steenies. Welcome to episode 121 of the So This My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today we have a former deputy minister on the podcast. Now, back in episode 117, we had the former US congressman, Barney Frank, on the pod. And he shared what it was like working in the heart of the US government, having been a member of the House of Representatives for 32 years. So if you haven't listened to Barney's episode yet, head over to episode 117. Today, we get a glimpse into Malaysian politics from our guest, Dr. Ong Kian Ning. He shares his journey from being a BCG consultant to entering politics for eight years, despite feeling extremely reluctant to do so. What it was like to be the party that toppled the ruling party which had never been replaced in the past 60 years prior. How he figured out what to do in his role as Deputy Minister of International Trade. What went so wrong with the Sheraton move? The chemistry between the then Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, Mahathir and Anwar. Why he chose not to run for election and what he's up to next. We cover a lot, so are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Kimmy. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start because I noticed in all your handles, you always have, I'm okay, man. And I wonder, is there a story behind that? Yeah. Good way to start. My initials of my name is OKM, Ong Kian Ming. And when I was in junior college in Singapore doing my A-levels, people would refer to me as OK Man. And then suddenly, after a while, I thought, okay, let's add an IM at the back. And it became I am OK Man. And that's my Twitter handle, my Instagram handle. Although I have to clarify to some people sometimes that it is not I mock man, <laughs> it's I'm okay man. I think when people see my email name, for example, then it becomes a little bit more obvious. So I try to be okay at most times, don't always succeed, but that's the kind of attitude I like to have in life. That was the next question I was going to have. Were you a positive or anything's okay kind of person growing up? What were you like as a child? I think I was generally quite positive, willing to try out different things, which is why you know, I left Malaysia when I was 15 to go to Singapore uh, to pursue my O-levels and A-levels there. And I've generally been quite optimistic and willing to take risks, including going to the US to do a PhD when I was 29. And also, of course, entering into politics, that's, that was also a risk in itself. So generally quite a positive and I would say cautiously optimistic person for the future. But before all that, I learned that when you were young, you wanted to be rich. <laughs> I think that was the kind of mindset I had going into university, which is why I decided to work for a management consultant, the Boston Consulting Group, when I graduated from my master's. And I think the idea of rich uh, wasn't getting the money for the sake of money, uh, but it was more 
uh, a recognition of what I thought it meant to be successful uh, in the world. You know, and if let's say you have monetary compensation, it would be able to allow you to afford things and be able to communicate or signal uh, to your peers and to the wider community that you've made it. Right. So obviously, uh, things change along the way. You know, I didn't go into politics thinking I would get rich. But yeah, I think we can discuss that later. When you were an ASEAN scholar in Singapore, what was that like? Because that's very, very different from growing up in Malaysia, I imagine, and studying with people here. Yeah. So just to give an example, I went to Raffles Institution, which some say is the best school in Singapore. And my class in RI was featured in a Straits Times article as the best express class in the entire country. So they did a comparison between my class and the best class in Raffles Institution 30 years back. And they circled all the people in the class who had eight A's and above for their O-levels. So for the class 30 years ago, there were about five names that were, five faces that were circled. For my class, out of a class of about 45 people, I think 40 faces were circled. So it was a very competitive environment, but I enjoyed it tremendously. I still keep in touch with my classmates, both Malaysians as well as Singaporeans. And it was a really eye-opening experience and very formative from an educational perspective uh, because it taught me that uh, if I wanted to aspire uh, to a certain education standard and if I could get through the hurdles that were put before me in Singapore, I would be able to survive and thrive in other educational settings. And that has proven to be the case. Wasn't this the time where you found Christ as well? Yeah, I, I think that was an interesting time for me because as a you know, teenager, I was always searching, trying to find a higher purpose in life. And that was when somebody brought me to church in Singapore. And after different discussions and interactions uh, with different people, reading books, that was when I decided to become a Christian. And my faith, although it is not something that I talk about publicly, especially when I was a politician because my constituency was a very racially mixed constituency and I knew that it could be used against me. My faith as a Christian has always driven me in terms of looking for a higher purpose in whatever I do, whether it's in the education sector, whether it is in public policy, whether it's in public life. I think the kind of legacy I want to leave in terms of my own career, my own undertakings has always been something that is hopefully comes from a higher purpose and a higher calling. And that, that's from my faith. Isn't the seeking of higher purpose a bit strange in the context of BCG? Yeah, so that's why I didn't last in BCG for very long. <laughs> I was there for two years. And I have to say, I learned a lot. You know, management consulting is an industry where they throw you into the deep end and you have to sink or swim. And many of the tools and frameworks that I learned in BCG, I still apply up to today. I still applied it when I was a politician, when I was a deputy minister, and I'm very grateful for that experience. In fact, I still have to deal with consultants these days. I'm part of a task force to review the National Industrial Master Plan under the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, my previous ministry. I was appointed by the minister and deputy minister to be part of that task force. And you know, we work with a consulting firm to you know, review that plan. And I would use some of the tools that I use in BCG to make sure that that plan is clearly communicated and written. How do they actually contribute though? I think the use of management consultants in Malaysia and also in Southeast Asia is still a work in progress. Uh, unlike in developed countries where a lot of corporations are much more used to and are able to use management consultants in many value-added ways, 
I think in Malaysia and Southeast Asia, the kind of interactions, the kind of work that we have with clients, it still you know, leaves room for improvement. So for example, when I was a management consultant at BCG, we were working with a bank to centralize their back office operations. So to keep the long story short, this is dating myself. Uh, in, in the past, when you were still using checks, were being processed at the branch level. And this project with BCG was actually to centralize all the back office operations into one central location. And that was a very useful project. We delivered value. But then the stage after that was, now that you've taken away all these back office processes, what do the staff do? And the staff was supposed to go out to start selling different pro products, mortgage products, interest products, unit trust products. But the people who are doing the back office stuff, they are not used to being facing it in that way. I was put in a situation where I had to handle both ends, you know, the back end and then also the front end. And being a fresh graduate, I knew nothing about sales. I knew nothing about how to get the customer base. And I think I was thrown in at a deep end to try to develop those expertise in ways that I think were not so fair to me and also to the client. So that's just one example. And didn't you learn as well at the time that it's important to make your boss look good as opposed to your client? Tell us about that. Yeah, when I joined BCG, we were being sold the idea that as a management consultant, you are there to deliver great value for the client. Come up with very brilliant ideas to be able to change the way the client does business, interacts with customers and whatnot. I realized quite soon after I became a consultant that this may not be the best strategy because when you want to think of proposals that are really game-changing, they are usually quite risky. The risk-reward kind of profile is, is quite high you know, high risk, high reward. And most bosses will not want to pitch those ideas to their clients. So what ends up happening is that you go for much safer options. You present the slides that you are told to present and you're not really given that much room to be a creative, especially when you're a junior consultant. So basically follow what the boss asks you to do. Do it well. Uh, make sure that the boss is happy at all times. Make sure that if let's say the boss uh, WhatsApps, what, uh, emails you at 3 a.m., you need to get the slides done by 6 a.m. So that was the kind of uh, lifestyle that I was leading and I didn't think that it was sustainable. So how do you decide that public policy was the next step? I wanted to get exposure to what political parties were doing with respect to public policies. And after BCG, I joined a couple of think tanks. One was linked to MCA, another was linked to Gerakan mm. to try to see whether I could contribute policy proposals and thinking and research into that ecosystem. This was in Sub and Sadar. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this was in 1999. Sorry, in 2001 after I left BCG. And I soon realized that, yes, even though I was producing some interesting research in different areas of public policy and also electoral reform policies, uh, I realized that many of the politicians in these parties were not really interested in the policy aspect. And at the time, Barisan National was still quite strong. Mm. So most of the time and effort spent by these political parties were about how they needed to consolidate their own power, how different individuals were there to want to protect their own turf. And, and this happens in you know, all political parties, including my own party, the DAP. But I think the extent to which it was being done within MCA and Gerakan was I think at a level where I didn't think I could make any positive uh, contribution, which is why I left when the opportunity came for me to do a PhD at Duke University in the US. Where did you feel at the time that you couldn't do anything? Th th this is something that still applies today. Policy is 
something that is not easily grasped by most politicians and policymakers. And for most politicians, their first instinct would be political, right? How does this make me look? Does it make me look good? What are the short-term and long-term consequences from furthering of my own political agenda and my own political standing in the party and in society? So sometimes when it comes to policy issues, you may have to take some hits in terms of short-term popularity. But, you know, long-term, there are certain policies which I think policy positions which I think are good for the country moving forward, but may not be politically popular. I'll give you a very recent example. Certain political parties are pushing for another round of EPF withdrawals. Uh, and the Prime Minister has come out to say that uh, that is not something that is prudent. We've had all these uh, withdrawals leading to about 150 billion ringgit being taken out of EPF over the past two, three, two, three years. But when many of my colleagues were in opposition, they were advocating for more EPF withdrawals. Uh, and when I publicly communicated and also privately communicated to say that this was something that is not good for the longer term, especially for the B40 community, I got certain responses to say that, look, you know, this is something that sells well in the short term. And it still does. But long term, I, I think it's something that is not responsible to do. And I'm glad that there are politicians across different parties who are willing to step out and also take that long-term position. Kairi Jamaluddin, uh, Sharil Hamdan in their port class, they have also stated their public position on this particular issue. So that's just one example of how uh, public policy sometimes uh, may not be so easily discussed in a rational way among political actors. Back then, did you not see anyone who was willing to go against the grain, even against their popularity? I, I would say this. I think after my experience with MC and Gerakan, what made me want to join the DAP was because I saw many younger leaders in the DAP and even some of the older ones that were more receptive in terms of trying to raise the bar in terms of public policy discourse and discussion. So, you know, some of the younger people that made me want to join DAP were people like Tony Pua who brought me into the party. And there were others, uh, Liu Chin Tong, Hannah Yo, uh, Yo Bin, who joined uh, the party at the same time as me, Tony Cheng. Rajiv, you know, Adun from Bugiga Singh. At the national level, people like Lim Guan Eng, people like Anthony Lok, and even Lim Kit Siang, uh, they were all at least willing to listen and they recognized that we needed to up the quality of discourse and debate and also capacity within the party by bringing in capable, policy-oriented people into the party. But just to bring back to your mindset when you decided to leave to the US, at the time you weren't thinking, I want to join the AP, right? I was open to joining a political party at that time, you know, especially after I graduated, but I never thought that I would be in the front lines you know, as an elected representative. I always thought that I would be in the back room doing election analysis, which I did, and also giving policy advice to my you know, colleagues in whichever party I decided to join at that time. So in the US, you end up at Duke University, you were doing a PhD in political science. You said before, this has helped your political career. How? I think for a couple of reasons. Firstly, being in the US actually exposed me to the political system that's very dynamic in the US. I went at a time when the US presidency transitioned from George W. Bush uh, to Barack Obama. What's so, that like? You know, it was a time of great excitement and great hope. You know, that was Barack Obama's slogan. I think I enjoyed the discourse that people were having at that time. Probably at a time when political polarization was just beginning to rise in the US it to, to a, you know, a level that I think uh, is not so healthy, but it was still an interesting exposure. And I could also see the kind of dynamism 
with regards to political activism that, that was very apparent at the state level, at the city level, even at the university level, because there were uh, some sort of like scandals that some students at Duke were involved in that made it to the news nationally. So all these interesting discourses were happening when I was there, and I, I think it helped me expose myself to what a vibrant democratic milieu could be like in the US. And then the other way in which it helped me was it really strengthened my understanding of comparative politics, not just focusing on politics in Malaysia, but also you know, in other countries and other systems. And my PhD thesis was, you know, it's called the Rise, Maintenance and Fall of Dominant Party Authoritarian Regimes. And it was a comparative study of over 15 regimes that, you know, fell into this kind of categorization and seeing how some of them are still in power today. Others are sort of like a little bit more unstable and then others that have fallen out of power, like the Barisan National in Malaysia. So what were some of the common threats that you found <clears throat> having analyzed 15 different countries? I think all these countries that I, I looked at, one of the major challenges, you know, in terms of maintaining these kinds of regimes was the issue of leadership transition. And if let's say these parties could successfully negotiate and manage a leadership transition that was relatively smooth, the chances that these parties would be able to survive beyond 20 years increases significantly. Right? And you can see, you know, in the case of Malaysia, once there was very public schisms in terms of leadership transitions, uh, you know, from Anwar leaving, leaving Amno, and even before that, Tengku Razali leaving, you know, and then later on, Muhyiddin also leaving. So these actually create schisms that continuously weaken the Barisan National to the stage whereby, you know, it is now a party that controls slightly over 10% of total parliamentary seats, whereas in, at the height of its power, it could actually rule Malaysia on its own. You know, because it had, it had a majority of parliamentary seats in the country. So yeah, the leadership transition. And then second thing would be, how do you man manage electoral and other types of reforms? A fine balancing act between listening to the needs of the people in a much more sort of like economically complex and politically diverse setting moving forward. And at the same time, how do you make sure that you hold on to enough power and the instruments of power such that you can continue to win election? So what were some of the instruments of power that these countries were using? Being able to roll out public policies relatively effectively. And I think for all of the problems or challenges that Barisan National had in the past, including issues of corruption and, and whatnot, you could say that there were policy deliverables that the country, that the Barisan National was able to deliver from an economic growth and stability perspective. But I think once those kinds of objectives were seen to be compromised excessively by personal agendas, by major corruption scandals such as 1MDB, I think you know, that hold on that instrument or that lever of power you know, weakened considerably. And we can see some of these examples happening in other countries like Mexico, like Taiwan. These are some of the more well-known examples of how regimes in this country also fell out of power after a long time in power. So a person who's very important in your life is Tony Poor, because he influenced you entering into politics. How did you first meet? We were actually both ASEAN scholars in the same school in Singapore, in Raffles, but I did not know him at that time. I started to get to know him, but just before I left to the US, somebody introduced us, you know, he was this tech entrepreneur. And at that time, I think he already had plans to enter into politics, although it wasn't something that was publicly disclosed because he was still running a company. 
It was only after he sold off his company, Cyber Village, that he joined the DAP. And when I was in the US, he invited me to start blogging. This was when blogs were still popular. It's still uh, around. Yeah, uh, it's still around. Yes, yeah. Blogging on education issues in Malaysia. So we started in 2006 and then we continued that uh, friendship. And in 2010, when I came back after my PhD, he asked me to help out the party. And I did you know, in different election campaigns. With that, I gradually got to know other leaders and felt comfortable with them. And in 2012, I joined the DP as a member. And then in 2013, I was elected. So Tony has been very, very instrumental and somebody I still you know, look to for advice even to this day. And he's somebody that I think the larger public probably doesn't value sufficiently, you know, given the many sacrifices he has made for the country. What do you think of the sacrifices he's made that people probably don't know or are not giving enough attention to? Yeah, so I was a special officer to Lim Guan Ying when he was the Minister of Finance. I was there for two months and I was appointed a special officer at the same time as Tony Pua. Uh, so there was a joke that went around, you know, they took a picture of uh, three of us, Guaning, myself and Tony. And uh, they were saying that, oh, you know, on, on the right, you have uh, Cambridge. Uh, on the left, you have Oxford. Because he graduated from Oxford, I got yeah. my master's from Cambridge. So I could really see how hard he worked behind the scenes to push through a lot of important agenda points for the Ministry of Finance, including many important reform agendas that unfortunately were not allowed to be fully brought to the table, either because it was sort of like vetoed by Mahate in some areas or also, and more importantly, because of the Sheraton move. So there are a lot of things that I think perhaps one day will appear in a book somewhere, but knowing Tony, I think he would not want to have all these things documented because he's not the type of person who wants the limelight to be shown on himself. So that's one example. And And I think the other one that people know about, but maybe not the full extent was the amount of work he put into looking into and investigating 1MDB, right? So he was probably the politician who knew the intricacies of 1MDB better than any other politician. And I think this was why he was especially targeted by Najib to the extent that his passport was confiscated. There were lawsuits taken out against him. And I think ultimately, obviously, he was vindicated after 2018 when the truth of the matter was put fully on the table after the changing up. Just before you entered into the political world, you actually had a discussion with your wife because it's a very big step mm. and you weighed the pros, the cons. What were some of the points you discussed? Yeah, so in 2012, I was at Crossroads. I was given an offer to join a, a think tank in Singapore. Mm. And the think tank is called the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Yusuf, in- Yusuf Ishak Institute. It's the premier institute in terms of Southeast Asian research in the region. And the other option was to join DAP and to prepare for the general elections that were coming up in 2013. And I spoke to my wife and uh, you know she told me that, look, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The research opportunities will always be there because of my academic background. And uh, that was also consistent with my own exposure at the time because no matter how much policy kind of input I gave to the politicians and, and my former colleagues, I knew that it would not be the same if, let's say, I was the one who was actually in the front line communicating and talking about those policies. Because I would be able to communicate you know, those policies with the substance that are commensurate to my own experience and my own knowledge. So you know, that basically was the time when we said, okay, it's okay, we'll do this for 10 years. 
we'll do this for two terms, you know, let's give it a try. These research opportunities may come at a later date. And ironically, I'm now, you know, I just started a research fellowship position at the Yusuf Ishak Institute starting in March for a period of six months. So my wife proved to be right. And I think it's always a good advice to listen to your spouse uh, on many uh, important decisions that you want to make together. Why did you decide on two terms? Do you feel that that was the only period to allow you to make some kind of meaningful impact? I think our understanding was that we will review my decision and my contribution to the political arena after two terms. I was open to continue after two terms, but I was also open to making you know, a career shift after two terms. So the understanding back then was we'll reevaluate after two terms. And obviously, after two terms, my decision was not to contest. And that was also something that I agreed with my spouse. I wonder when you make the decision to become in the public eye, it also affects your family as well. I mean, there are some people, they would say, our whole family gives up our private life. They would just expect to be able to stay in your house because why not? You are giving back to our constituents. What kind of sacrifices were being made behind the scenes? I was very fortunate because my wife is very understanding. We also don't have children. So the kind of time demands on my spouse is a bit less compared to other spouses who have to take care of kids. And of course, our weekends were basically not my own anymore. So things that we used to enjoy doing, like going out to exercise, watch movies and things like that, we could only do very, very infrequently. And of course, even things like when we go on holidays, I tell her, don't post any pictures on social media. You know, even if let's say we're going hiking in New Zealand, you know, it's not like a luxurious holiday. But people may think, oh, what are you doing overseas when uh, there's stuff to do in your constituency? You know, what happens if let's say there's a big flood that happens in your constituency, which has happened before. Yeah. You're overseas having a holiday, you know. So those are the kinds of things that we have to be very, very careful about. Uh, now that I'm no longer in frontline politics, uh, you know, we can post more pictures and be a little bit less uh, cautious in terms of our, you know, public engagement. So. Has your wife ever regretted saying yes? Oh, she's not regretted, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think she's also very happy that I that we've made the decision not to contest in the recent general election. So what is it like to join DEP and decide I'm going to prepare for my first election? What does it like? It was quite stressful because I did not know the seat that I was going to be fielded in until three or four days before a nomination. Uh, so and, you don't uh, get to choose? Uh, no, no, we don't get to choose. <laughs> yeah, I, Only in very, very exceptional cases, I think, will we know which seat we're going to be contesting in if, let's say, we're, we're, we're going to be parachuted in from the top, so to speak. Why is that the case though? I mean, what if you have no links whatsoever with that constituency? I actually didn't have any links with, the constitu <laughs> with that constituency of Dang in 2013. This is because there are always going to be a lot of last minute changes in terms of who's going to move where, uh, what are the larger political considerations for a certain MP to move to a certain seat. And in 2013, it was decided that a number of national leaders would move to contest in the state of Johor so that DAP could make uh, more inroads into Johor. So Lim Kit Siang went there to contest in Gelangpata. Now it's called Iskandar Putri. Liu Chintong went to contest in Kluang. And my predecessor in Serdang, uh, Tio Ni Ching, who's now the Deputy Minister for Communications, she went to Kulai to contest. Right. So when they made these moves, there were a few openings uh, that opened up. Uh, so it was not only me who was being offered uh, certain seats in Selangor. There were also others who are more senior than me who were being offered seats. Uh, but so happened that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the call came in, I think at two o'clock in the morning, two or three days before the 
general elections in 2013. Ken Ming, you're going to be contesting in Serdang. Go. And then uh, I went, introduced myself. Couldn't really speak Mandarin properly at the time. Tried my best. And I think uh, over time, I gained the respect of my party members in Serdang, which later became Bangi. And also, I think I did enough groundwork to be able to gain the respect of many of the voters and the constituents there. As well. So Bangi now has about more than 300,000 voters. Yeah. Perlis has about 150,000. You know, it was a heavy responsibility. I'm glad that I built up a good team there so that my successor, Sharizan, would have a softer landing in terms of being able to reach out to this largest parliamentary constituency in Malaysia. How do you begin to reach out in the first place, though, when you have no links? Well, I mean, even though me, myself, I don't have any links, my party has links. The, the members there have been there for a long time. And as the member of parliament, we will get invited to many, you know, constituency events, you know, temple visits, visits to the mosque during Ramadan, residence associations and stuff like that. So that's part of the cost for most politicians. And that's how we get to know the issues. That's how we work with the different state representatives as well as uh, local councillors to try to solve some of the constituency issues of which there are numerous. What were some of the issues that you had to face? When you were in the urban areas, actually, it's quite standard. You know, you have issues to do with traffic and infrastructure. You have issues to do with rubbish collection, cleanliness at the local level. And then there's also other community issues. People having challenges from a financial, social, community perspective. So I work, I think, to develop those kinds of knowledge and those kind of capabilities with my team over time so that we can find the best way to try to resolve as many issues as possible. Although those issues are never ending. You try to do the best that you can and hopefully the voters can see that you, you know, are putting in the effort to you know, address most of their concerns. The issues are never ending. You also can't help everyone. So yeah. how do you decide who to help? There are different levels of assistance that an MP or elected rep can do. So at a very basic level, you, know, you have very minimal touch points whereby you're just like giving out school bags to children who are going back to, the, going back to school you know, from B40 communities. You're giving, you know, food baskets when it was during COVID for those people who couldn't work and couldn't feed themselves. So that's sort of like at a very superficial, very one-off level. And then there are other associations that you can work with on a longer-term basis. Every year, you give them funding to run activities on their own or together, and they would be able to help you reach out to a larger, you know, larger number of people on a more sustainable basis. And then, I think this is where I find it to be the most impactful. There are some people that, and certain cases that I gravitated towards because I knew that I had certain expertise or experience that could be helpful to them, you know, in a more personal way that other elected reps couldn't do. So, for example, there was a young lady that, in fact, I'm still in touch with and still try to assist. She is an OKU, she has lupus, and she was abused by, not physically, but she was abused by some of her so-called PhD advisors in a public university because she was an OKU and they basically stole her ideas without crediting her. They did not pay her for her research assistant, you know, help. And she was really, you know, given a bad time. And she lodged a complaint against the university, against these lecturers to the university. But they, it, the, the, the proper actions were never really undertaken. So when I got to know about this case, I actually lobbied all the way up to the Minister of Edu Higher Education at, at that time, who was from AMNO to see whether she could give some assistance. I reached out to the Vice-Chancellor of the public university and they reopened the, the, the case for investigation. Unfortunately, they found in favour of the lecturer, which is quite common in many of these cases. 
But yeah, I mean, that was an area where I think I could use my academic experience. I could use my contacts in, in the university setting and in the government setting to try to assist this person. And this person actually almost passed away from COVID. I tried to intervene to get her shifted from the Kajang Hospital to the UN Medical Center because her health records were there. And I think they managed to treat her better. She stayed in the hospital for one month. I also got the university to try to help out on her medical bills as well. And I'm glad that, you know, those kinds of assistance can continue. But as elected rep, those cases are few and far between because you just don't have the mental bandwidth to be able to deal with individual cases at that depth. But I do have cases like that where I follow up at a more sort of like in-depth level. Do you try to manage expectations as well? When people come here, they think you're the hero, you'll solve everything, but you can't. <laughs> Actually, this is one of the challenges I face because most of the time I try to set expectations low. But for some people who I managed to deliver, like there was a, a student who wanted to do her master's at Imperial College and I, I you know, managed to do some fundraising for her and I managed to get a foundation in Malaysia to support her master's program overseas and she, you know, she graduated. And, you know, she has an expectation that I will be able to deliver a PhD scholarship for her. So uh, I still try my best, but I also try to manage expectations to say that just because I delivered one time doesn't mean that I can deliver at the next level. And you have to realize that, especially now when I'm no longer an elected representative, there are certain limitations towards, you know, what I can and cannot do. So what does it actually mean in terms of giving, save, financial support to someone who needs it? What do you have to do to make that? potentially have? Actually, giving financial support is very easy if let's say the financial support is one-off and the amount is not very big. Mm -hmm. So somebody's house burns down, I give a thousand ringgit to help buy some and, and then maybe I get somebody to sponsor some electrical items as the person is rebuilding the house. So those kind of things are very, very easy. But if let's say you want to have a stage whereby you want to help this person build a business, you want to help this person go on some sort of an entrepreneurial training program, and then after that, you want to see this person's business become more sustainable. I think those are the cases where it, it requires a lot more hand-holding, a lot more assistance, a lot more kind of personal attention. And those kind of experiences actually take a lot out of an elected rep. And the, the challenge about these kinds of cases is like what I mentioned just now. If you have success with even a handful of cases, then other people expect you to work the same kind of miracles with even a larger group of people. And this is where I think the institutions of the state, in terms of the state government, local government, federal government have to come in. Because elected rep does not have that kind of resources to be able to do that kind of big impact, you know, in the way that I described just At the time when you first joined politics, I imagine you were firmly of the view, I will be in the opposition forever. When did that sentiment start to change? I think even before 2018, I thought it would be quite difficult for Pakatan Harapan to become government. Even though I saw that maybe the ground was shifting with Mahathir coming on board, Persatu joining Pakatan Harapan, Najib really being under threat. But the reality of being part of the government only sank in when I saw the results of 2018 coming in. And of course, it was a big relief because I knew that if Najib had continued to be Prime Minister after 2018, not only would there be very major policy consequences because he would have to do much more to cover up the 1MDB scandal. But he would also go all out to take even greater revenge against many of my former colleagues. People like Tony Pua, people like Lim Guan Ng, you know, others who had been really attacking him on 1MDB. So it was a great relief when the, the transition happened in 2008. 
So that second election round, do you feel like you were sort of putting your life on the line? This is it. Not so much for me personally, but I could feel the pressure because I knew the consequences from my former colleagues because these were very nasty people that would enact revenge in a very severe and significant way. What was it like when the results came? I think I was a bit numb. And after that, the first like political reaction was, oh crap, we have to implement our manifesto. <laughs> Because at the time, I was the DP rep who was, you know, working on the Pakatan Harapan Manifesto. And it was a long manifesto. We put in a lot of things. I knew quite well the kind of challenges we would have in trying to implement it. And again, it goes back to the issue of policy that I discussed. Because not many of my colleagues realized actually what was inside the manifesto. <laughs> and even I think Mahathir at that time, you know, he was campaigning more, more or less against Najib. He didn't really pay too much attention to the manifesto as well. Uh, we tried our best, I, I think, in terms of trying to implement as much of the manifesto as possible. But of course, I, I think there were and there are still challenges towards putting in place some of the more trickier parts of any manifesto program. What were some of the immediate thoughts in terms of, okay, there are so many things I need to execute. What are the priorities in this manifesto? I think in the initial part, it was more to do with, okay, what is it that I want to do in my constituency first? Because prior to 2018, we did not have any funds from the federal government. And one of the first things that I was asked to do was to repair a running track that was very dilapidated uh, in a stadium in Bandar Bangi. So that was one of the things that I promised immediately after the election, that I would get this track repaired. And you know, I'm glad to say that I managed to get the allocation from the Ministry of Finance to do this track repair. And I actually undertook this repair job myself in terms of my office coordinating it. Usually you would give it to either the state or the local government to do it. But because I had certain expertise and experiences in doing this, you know, I was given that responsibility. And now Bandar Baru Bangi has a, a new running track. Yeah, so that, that was sort of like more at the constituency level. In terms of at the national level, I, I was appointed as uh, Lim Guanning's special officer. And I knew that in the Ministry of Finance, there were many, many challenges and many, many tasks. So, you know, I worked with Tony to build up the team and to put the agenda in place. But, you know, I was only there for two months. I was fortunately also given the opportunity to serve as the Deputy Minister of MITI. And uh, that also had its fair share, share of our policy challenges. Just before diving into that whole Deputy Minister, their role. I wonder, even for me, I was involved in politics, that expectation, that euphoria that everyone had was sky high. And for me personally, I felt a bit of concern because I thought, well, these people who are pushing you to the top will expect the world of you. And if you fail, they will be the first to crush you. Were you concerned about these? Yes, because I knew the manifesto was going to be difficult <laughs> to deliver. But people actually hold you to that? We held ourselves to it. Mm. Yeah, because at that point in time, that was my understanding of what politics should be. You make certain promises and we debated the contents of the manifesto very rigorously internally. So the expectation was that, you know, this would be a blueprint that we would try to follow through on. And in fact, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say also that uh, when I went to MOF, when I went to METI, this is what the civil servants referred to as well because they had no idea about how PH was going to govern. The only guide that they had was the manifesto. So when I went to the Minister of Ministry of Finance, one of their top civil servants there actually had outlined and highlighted all the parts of the manifesto that was relevant to the Ministry of Finance. And when I went to METI, the same thing as well. So you could see that the manifesto has consequences and, and is an important document in terms of guiding public policy. And I hope that 
that can continue to be the practice, you know, moving forward as well. Yeah. So I, you know, going back to the sky high expectations, I knew that the expectations were unrealistic, but still, I thought that we needed to push as much as possible because we don't know how long we had to implement this. And even at that time, we'll probably discuss this further in, in greater detail later on. Even at that time, I thought that the transition dynamics between Mahathir and Anwar would be very, very complicated. And I thought that there may be a chance, maybe after the APEC meeting in 2020, that the government may not necessarily last. But I didn't think that the government would fall in early 2020, February, you know, because of the Sheraton move. I mean, when you first came in, obviously there are lots of people never had a different government before. How did you even figure out and build trust with these people who probably still owe their allegiance to the former party? I think the civil servants, especially at the top level, you know, they pivoted quite quickly because Dr. Mate was an old hand and there were many people who would still remember when he was prime minister. And I think the fact that you had Mohideen, you had others who, you know, were in government previously also made it a little bit more you know, comfortable for the civil servants. But for the new ministers, I think, you know, my former colleague, Yobi In, she was pushing very hard as the minister for energy and uh, climate change. And I think, you know, many of the civil servants had trouble keeping up with her. Uh, on my part at, at uh, MOF and at METI, I think the, the cooperation given to us was pretty good. My approach was always very professional. I approached things from a policy perspective. Let's say you disagree with me. Do not disagree with me based on my party or my race or my religion or whatever. but disagree with me based on the policy grounds of what was being discussed. And I think because I established that very early on that most of the officers found it relatively easy to deal with me. So at METI, you had to inherit this whole legacy from Tansuri Rafida Aziz. Hmm. What was it that you inherited? That was a you know very good inheritance, I think. Yeah. Firstly, Rafida was very professional in terms of making sure that METI officers were very responsive because they have to be front-facing. And front-facing, I mean dealing with industry, dealing with the various diplomatic representatives, dealing with the chambers of commerce. So when I went to METI, many of the civil servants there were top-notch in terms of engaging and knowing the industry issues. That's one. Second thing is, it's probably the only ministry whereby post-cabinet and also most of the major meetings are conducted in English because we needed to make sure that our stakeholders knew what we were doing, the kind of communications that we were undertaking could be accessed easily by industry representatives and foreign investors, for example. And then I think the third thing would be a very close cooperation between MITI, the ministry, and also the different agencies, uh, MAIDA, MARTRADE, you know, and it was part and parcel of a very strong, uh, cohesive family that I think she pushed very hard to bring together. How long was that transition for people to get used to who you are? Because I'm trying to bring it into the whole idea of every politician has a sort of brand thing that people know them for. So how did you? Yeah, I, I think the, the staff at METI had to get used to me in a couple of different ways. So one way was my work schedule. My driver would come to my house at 6 o'clock and I would be in the office by 6.30. Thankfully, they, they were used to this because Mustafa Mohammad, the former minister, was also somebody who started work very early and worked until quite late. But the difference, I think, for me was that I would frequently even exercise before going to the office. So sometimes I would go and run around the office at 4, 45, 5 o'clock and then I'll go into the office after that to have a shower. I would go run regularly with some of the people who run at METI as well. So They woke up at night uh, to run with you. 
sometimes during the weekend, sometimes during competitions, but I think this is a bit of a humble brag, but <laughs> most of them realized that they probably couldn't run at my pace. I think that was one, the physical sort of like schedule. And then the second thing is how hands-on I was. Uh, and that was something that I think they adjusted to, I think, in a positive way. So, for example, one of the policies that we were trying to roll out during METI was this uh, Industry 4.0 policy. And I made it a point to go with the team that was promoting this policy to every single state. So, you know, they said, oh, okay, let's go to Kelantan, Trunganu, Pahang. Then I, I would, you know, go on a road trip with them. I would be the one making the pitch and the presentation with regards to what this policy was about. They would supplement it with some additional details. And, you know, we even had a road trip that I went from Cebu to Bintulu to Miri. And that was a very tough and long road trip through the Pan Borneo Highway that is the only part was partially constructed. So, you know, I set the expectation. I, I think the staff then realized that, okay, he's here to work. So we have to work with him to make sure that the agenda of MITI is pushed forward. For the benefit of those who are not Malaysians, what is Industry 4.0? Industry 4.0 is basically an agenda for that MITI rolled out in 2018 to help especially the SME sector who are in manufacturing to upgrade themselves along you know, 12 or 13 dimensions, things like artificial intelligence, internet of things, automation, cybersecurity, and you know a few other things. Basically, it's to try to upgrade their manufacturing processes so that they can be best in class. But most of our SMEs are probably at Industry 1.5 to 2, you know. So probably, you know, it's about getting them to maybe 2.5 and 3 before we even get to industry 4. Yeah. That probably shows why most of them came and said, how can we get more foreign workers? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an ongoing issue that many, many people in the manufacturing sector place. But it was actually during COVID that many of them realized that they needed to automate because mm. they had lost a number of their foreign workers. And that was when interest in some of the policies associated with industry 4.0 with our plan were increased significantly. Mm. And we talked about Industry 4.1. That was one of three major areas that you focused on during your time. Yes. How did you even figure out these three areas? When I started at METI, I, I realized I needed to have a game plan because there were too many things to do. The minister also had his own agenda. So I, should, I wanted to do it in a way that I could complement him. So I made it a point to say that, look, uh, the E&E &E sector, uh, electronics and uh, electrical items, is a very, very important sector for the country. These are your semiconductor operations in places like Penang, parts of Selangor, and, and also uh, Johor. And because I knew that this was one of the key drivers of economic growth and, and healthy exports, and also the fact that Penang is an important state, especially for my party, that was an area I, I focused a lot on. The second area was actually with regards to our interactions with China, yep. whether it's getting investments from China to come, and also us going out to understand the market in China which is why in my 20 months as deputy minister, I actually visited China six times, mm. including Hong Kong, there will be eight times. Uh, so that was uh, something that I really prioritized. And then the third area would be this Industry 4.0 uh, program because it allowed me to meet with SMEs, and this includes going to different factories in different states and talking to them and understanding their needs from a very ground-up kind of perspective. So our current minister, Zafru, just announced that he managed to get investments of $170 billion from China. What does that mean? I mean, you look at the headlines and you see the number, but what does it actually mean for us? Yeah, I think that's in the context of a very successful visit to China by Prime Minister Anwar. And I would probably give a little bit of caution in terms of the numbers. But I think what is more important is the fact that this was Anwar's maiden visit to China. 
And the fact that he was able to engage with not just the president as well as the new prime minister, but he had a session with different captains of industry from uh, some of the large uh, Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises. And this allows them, I think, to get a sense of who Anwar is, uh, that he's serious about bringing uh, Chinese investments into the country, that he's serious about strengthening the trade and economic uh, relationship between the two countries, and that there's a, a longer runway compared to, let's say, previous prime ministers you know, after 2018. So this allows these companies to say, look, we are going out into Southeast Asia. We want to have a more diversified manufacturing and investment footprint because of what's happening between China and US. And Anwar allows us to have this confidence that Malaysia is a good place to do business in with respect to Southeast Asia. Based on my own experience in visiting China, what I found is that those investors who already have an interest in coming to Malaysia uh, they would do their investments even if, let's say, you know, I don't go or the Minister of International Trade doesn't go to China. But if we go, and that's what you know, Anwar has done, it will give them the additional confidence that, let's say, perhaps choosing between Malaysia and one of our, re our regional competitors or one of the other countries in ASEAN, they would have a higher comfort level to come to Malaysia. And among those who are already in Malaysia, they would have a higher confident le confidence level that they can enhance or increase their existing investment footprint in Malaysia. Since you've run some of these trade investment missions yourself, what is it like for you going on these missions? How do you ensure that you're maximizing your time? It's very tiring because we do it a little bit differently. I went on my own. I went with Lim Guaning when he was a finance minister. And what the approach that we took was very hands-on uh, because in the Chinese setting, they are much more used to a certain kind of bureaucracy whereby you have a very simple speech that's given by a senior politician and then all the groundwork will be done by the lower level civil servants, so to speak. But we made it a point to make sure that, you know, if there were presentations, I wouldn't mind doing it myself. I did it in, in Chinese. And, the Chinese uh, was much better. Uh, yeah, yeah. It improved, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit more at that time. And then, you know, there were other interactions that we would ask the other civil servants and also representatives from MIDA to come and, and supplement. So that I gave them an impression that we were very hands-on. We knew what we were doing and we were willing to engage on very nitty-gritty issues that perhaps other governments were not prepared to do, you know, especially when you have ministerial representation for these trade and investment missions. So what Anwar did, I think, is along the same line, along the same spirit. So even though if, let's say, you know, I may not necessarily have the confidence that the 170 billion is a hard and fast number, I would say that the opportunities for more investment coming from China into the region, especially Malaysia, would have been helped by his recent trip. How does China see Malaysia? A couple of framing that I think that Chinese investors would see Malaysia. They see Malaysia as a very comfortable place for them to do business because our legal system is relatively accessible. You have contracts and laws that can be signed in English. At the same time, they also appreciate the fact that they have access to a good pool of labor that can speak Chinese. Whether it is a local ethnic Chinese or even non-Chinese who have gone to Chinese primary schools. They also appreciate that Malaysia is a relatively cost-effective place to do business, especially on the service sector side, in contrast to, let's say, Singapore. Right? So that's that kind of framing. But at the same time, they also realize that Malaysia is not the place where you can hire 10, 20,000 workers easily, which is what they do in places like India, Vietnam, and also in Indonesia. We have positioned ourselves, I think, at a good spot. I think 
The challenge for us is actually to attract the right kind of Chinese investments into Malaysia in the manufacturing and the service sector side, especially for those who, let's say, want to use Singapore as their springboard in terms of going into the region. And if, let's say, they have certain service offerings, they may find that Malaysia has the skill set uh, and also has the uh, cost-effective environment to be able to uh, undertake a lot of these investment opportunities. How did you decide whether the investment was right, though? Oh, there's a process that uh, MAIDA, which is the uh, Malaysian uh, Investment Development Authority, there's a process whereby they go through to vet uh, different kinds of investments coming into the country. So I think by and large, they've done, done a pretty good job. The Chinese investments are still coming into the country. Were there any surprising takeaways during your time? I think dealing with China is a very complicated affair because they have uh, different levels of engagement. The market is also very big and very complicated. And trying to bring Malaysian companies to invest in China, I think that was one of the major challenges I had because there is great potential there. But at the same time, if you're not careful, you can burn a lot of money trying to en enter into this market. So I think one of the usual sort of like feedback that I get is when we go to China, people know Malaysia as a place that has good durian, but they don't know Malaysia as a vibrant place for, let's say, E&E manufacturing. They don't know Malaysia has a relatively vibrant tech sector. They don't know Malaysia, that Malaysia has a pretty good global business service or shared service support sector. So I think these are things that we need to do more work on in terms of selling Malaysia, not necessarily to the mass market, but at least to the corporate players in China that we're a good place to do business in all these different sectors. February 2020 was a big moment. Mm -hmm. I wonder you know, what your experience was. Yeah, so you're referring to the Sheraton move. Yeah. I had already gotten feedback from different people that there was a lot of disquiet and unhappiness in Bersatu with regards to Pakatan Harapan, with regards to uh, the standing of Bersatu among the Malay voters. And uh, this came to, you know, a bit of a hit, I think, uh, in October 2019, when Bersatu lost the Tanjung Piai uh, by-elections to BN at the time. And that disquiet was growing. Somehow Mahathir managed to put a stop to that at that particular point in time. But I was told that that kind of strategy would restart again. And, and it did. But I didn't think that would happen so quickly and in the manner that it happened. Whereby, you know, even when Pakatan Harapan made the decision to say that, look, Mahathir, you can decide whenever you want to step down. And we are not pressuring you to step down right now. Uh, which was the outcome of the PH meeting that took place, I think, on the 19th of February. But when Mahathir went to the Basatu Supreme Council, the Majlis Tertinggi, he was pressured to leave Pakatan Harapan. He was pressured and in fact, he was overruled. Uh, and I think that was a time of great uncertainty among the different politicians, different parties. And even within my party, I can tell you for a fact that we were very confused. You know, there were some leaders saying that Mahathir would take care of the situation, we would be able to get back into power and reclaim our majority very, very shortly. Uh, but, you know, before we even knew it, he had already tendered the resignation. After he tendered his resignation, there were different debates about who we should vote for when we go to the palace, write down whose name and things like that. And I, I think it was just a very, very confusing time. You know, even when I think back on it, I think uh, there were decisions that probably could have been made uh, better in terms of coordination within the different parties. But at the end of the day, because the relationship between Mahate and Anwar had become so toxic, it was very, very difficult to imagine a situation where the two of them could uh, coexist together. 
and even their parties could co- coexist together. We were touching on Anwar and Mahathir, you said that some better decisions could have been made. We don't have to point fingers, but it's just, you know, as power of retrospection, looking back, what kind of lessons can we learn? What kind of better decisions could have been made? <clears throat> this is where I think it gets a bit tricky. But if let's say we had chosen not to vote for Anwar when we went to the palace, meaning Pakatan Harapan, but instead vote for Mahate, and you know some of the other parties were to have voted for Mahate, he would have gotten a majority. And if let's say that was the case, then he would probably have become prime minister again, and Pakatan Harapan would still be in government. But hindsight is twenty twenty. We would not have been sure how long that particular government would have lasted. We're not sure whether Mahathir would still hold on to the manifesto promises of Pakatan Harapan because that was one of the things he felt was tying him down. And of course, we did not know what kind of direction he would have brought the country towards, you know, during the time of COVID, whether or not he would have also allowed Anwar to become prime minister, to take over as prime minister before the next general election. So there were probably a lot of uncertainties that I think we cannot predict even with today's insights and hindsight in mind. You mentioned that relationship between Mahathir and Anwar. I wonder, right from the very, very beginning, when they decided to work together, how did you feel about that? I think it was a marriage of convenience. Each side needed the other for different reasons. And even the AP, you know, we needed Mahathir to come in to increase our chances of winning a higher percentage of the Malay vote. So we knew what was on the table. But we were also encouraged by the fact that Mahathir really did want to have an anti-corruption agenda. And in this particular area, he actually pushed through and carried through many of the things that he said before the general election. So in terms of delivery on the manifesto on this front, there were a lot of institutional changes that were made under Mahathir. But I think on a lot of other things, it was probably quite hard to work with him because he was still operating in the context of maybe the 1980s, 1990s in terms of public policy making, including wanting to push for a third national car, mm. which made it quite difficult for us at Miti. And was it clear that there was a disconnect between Anwar and Mat? I think the tensions were already evident, but because th- there was no proper, I think, communication between the main actors in a very honest and open way, this made it, I think, almost inevitable that the Pakatan Harapan government would collapse the way. And what was it like for you after? Well, a month after that, Mohidin declared the emergency. So we stayed yeah. at home and it was a difficult period. I, I think there were probably a lot of mental and psychological challenges that many of us had to go through because we went from being deputy ministers, ministers one day in government to suddenly being in the opposition and not having any positions and anything to do. But I think it was a good learning process and I came out of it stronger and probably gave me the motivation to do some of the things that I did during the COVID period. At what point did you think, okay, my wife was right, two terms is enough? Probably not so soon. During the COVID period, I did a lot of things. I did a lot of assistance to, to the voters. Yeah. Slango government did a lot of free testing programs, which I was you know, very involved in. There were also different vaccination programs that I initiated on my own together with the Malaysian Red Crescent. So we were very, very busy during that time, wanting to do a lot of stuff. I was involved in the vaccination effort that was done by the Ministry of Health at the federal level yeah. on behalf of Slango. I was appointed to that position by Kari Jamaluddin when he was the health minister. I think probably things came to hit towards the end of the COVID period when I realized that all of the hard work that I was putting in, all of the policy initiatives that I was pushing through somehow didn't really gain that much traction within the party. 
And I could see that certain policy directions that were undertaken by certain party leaders were not so in line with my own long-term position. At that time, I already saw that there was a successor that could replace me in Bangi. And I knew that this person would be acceptable to the senior leadership. So that was when I made my plans to transition. And I wanted to do it in such a way that I would give my successor enough of a lead time to know my staff, to understand and get to know the constituency a little bit more, and also to allow me to help him with the campaign, you know, in 2022. We've spoken a bit about how you get to know your constituents. I wonder, flipping to the other end, how do we look at a politician and know that they're actually doing the work? That they are genuine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's quite hard to tell, actually, because these days, you know, social media can tell one story yeah. and then, uh, you know, on the ground, it can be another. Let's say you have enough data points of people who have had genuine interactions with the politician, whether it's constituents, whether it's people from industry, whether it is community groups, they will be able to give you a good sense of where this person is coming from. You need to have a consistent story consistent effort over time that is not just communicated through social media, but also validated by people who have worked with you, who have seen you in action before. So I hope that my record can speak for itself. And I think I've done a decent enough job that most people, I think, would remember me relatively fondly. <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, every single person I've spoken to have always spoken about you in glowing terms. Okay, yeah, that's and good say that You really do your research. You know everything. So go into this interview prepared. <laughs> 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 the overarching review. So one thing I learned when I was interviewing the former US congressman, Barney Frank, and I was asking him, what's the secret to your success? And he said that I was really very good at just working with my peers, which is very different from working with those who are beneath you. And there's a lot of compromises that need to be made. And I wonder if that's the same with you as well. You did mention that one of the things that you wish you had done better was working better with your minister because of your different working styles. Mm. So just that. Yeah, I, I think I work well with people who are of the same mindset yeah. with me. And that, that's quite normal. So people who are more proactive, who can think fast on their feet, yeah. who are quite hardworking. Maybe for others who are, you know, perhaps, you know, working not at the same speed, I think I had certain frustrations with them. And maybe I express it in a way that I should not have. Uh, it's one tea with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. No, I, would, well, I wanted to say go running with me, but probably not a good idea. But yeah, I mean, it's a lesson that I have taken with me and uh, in my future undertakings, including, you know, currently at Taylor's, starting this uh, philosophy, politics and economics program. I definitely have adjusted my working style so that I can be a better colleague with my peers and also be able to work well with my seniors as well. So this part and parcel of the learning process and trying to find my why, so to speak. <laughs> so what is the working style that we should all aspire to have? I'll summarize very simply. A friend of mine told me that all of us have to deal with three levels of working relationship. The people that are above us, the people who are around us, which are our peers, and then the people who are below us. Most of the time, people can only manage two of these three relationships well. Uh, and I think for me, it's about understanding what I do well, the kind of interactions that I have a comparative advantage in. And then in the areas where I don't do so well, I need to mitigate my weaknesses, right? So if let's say I know that I'm impatient with people who maybe don't work at the same pace as I do, then take a step back to understand their own responsibilities, their own burdens, and maybe give them a bit of time to process things so that we can have a better longer-term working relationship. I was curious because you once said that not everyone's meant to have a lifelong career as a politician. Who are those who would qualify to have one uh, or who have the personality for it? Yeah, I, I think they, are, they would be in the minority. And it's not necessarily a good thing. 
So for example, I think Dr. Mate should have transitioned to become a statesman after 2000 and 2020, for example, but he still wants to you know, agitate and, and say certain things in the public arena. Somebody that I think has done it much better is, you know, who took a backseat, who did not contest in this general election, but he's still active, issuing his statements and wanting to show some sort of a moral leadership for this government and also for the country. But these are people who, you know, their lifeblood, their instinct is in politics. They think, eat and sleep politics, which I don't necessarily think is a healthy thing. Because if you look at developed countries, many of their politicians actually transition to play different sorts of roles in different international organizations, in foundations that they run themselves or they have a team to run so that they can do different philanthropic endeavors and whatnot. So I think that actually should be a better model to go towards rather than having people stay in politics their whole entire lives and doing more or less the same thing. But how do you know when it's time to leave? It's different for a different individual. And my time, you know, for me personally, I think the time was up because, you know, I knew that I contributed as much as I could. I, I had found a successor and I, I was also, also thinking about other roles that I wanted to play, you know, in terms of different types of nation building agendas. This doesn't mean that I have left frontline politics forever. If let's say the next election comes and I feel that I have the energy, there's a role for me to play, there's something that can be put on the table, I can put something on the table, then, you know, I'd be open to discussing at this point with my wife and also yeah. with my colleagues in my party. But for now, my focus is in academia, it's in research, it's in doing the kind of other endeavours that I'm interested in. So how did you end up being a part of setting up Malaysia's first PPE course? Which, mm -hmm. the moment I heard it, I thought of Oxford's PPE that creates all of your British Prime Ministers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so most people associate the PPE program with many Prime Ministers who have graduated from Oxford with a similar degree. And in Malaysia, two of my former colleagues, Kairi Jamaluddin and Tony Poir, both are PPE graduates. And it so happened that it, Taylor's was actually thinking about starting this program even before they knew that I was stepping away from frontline politics. And they had already undergone a very rigorous internal market analysis and also vetting process to try to see the viability of this program in Malaysia. And when I met up with some of their senior leadership team, there was a good fit. I could see where they wanted to take the program towards and I could see that I could play an important role in setting up this as you mentioned, uh, first PP program in Malaysia. So the meeting of minds, I think the meeting of vision was one that was quite natural. So even though I had a couple of other offers from other private higher education institutions, this was the best fit for me and I have no regrets. It's been a very good first month at Taylor's working with my colleagues to see how we can you know, work on this PP program. Where's this course viable now? I mean, are we hoping to create Malaysian prime ministers out of this? What did Oxford get right that we could do? I don't necessarily think that we should look at seeing what Oxford has gotten right. I, I think it's more of what Malaysia is ripe for in the sense that interest in politics, public policy is much higher now compared to before, especially among the young people because many of them had their first experience in voting, yeah. you know, after the undi 18 in the last general election. So the kind of discourse that we're having in this front is actually unprecedented in Malaysia. So this is an excellent time for us to design this program, not necessarily only to build future potential political leaders, but also people who want to lead in public policy, in, in business, in think tanks, in government, in NGOs. So, you know, the kind of skills and tools that I want the students to be able to pick up under this program would be a very complete and comprehensive skill set that they can use to be leaders in whatever 
sector of the economy or industry they choose to develop their careers in. So I had a question from Lim C N, who wanted to know how you're going to take into account the rise of AI and whether it would just enhance the education as opposed to take away. Yeah, so going back to the PPE program, if let's say we want to write an essay on certain political or political science or, or economic issues, obviously you could have the AI approach to doing this. But in the context of a tutorial where you need the students to actually give their own inputs to be able to value add to whatever you've written on the essay, this is where the very personal interaction comes in. That's one. Secondly, there will be a curriculum design aspects or components within this program whereby you'll actually be involved in doing actual research with think tanks, with academics, with different external partners, whereby you can't use AI to replicate the kind of research outputs that we want to generate for the students. So this will be part and parcel of a new learning dynamic, which I hope to be incorporated into the PPE program. Another question from S. Baskaran, who voted for you in Sungai And so he wanted to know if you managed to bring the desired changes in Malaysian politics that's needed, or did it change you? Uh, I think both are true. Uh, I think in terms of bringing something to the table, I definitely uh, would say that in terms of public policy discourse, many people realize and recognize that I've tried to be uh, fair, I've tried to be professional, I've tried to be objective, I've tried to bring facts and figures into whatever debate that I've been uh, involved in. In terms of how it has changed me, definitely I would say hopefully for the better. In terms of how I've learned from community engagement, learned from my peers, learned from the, the responsibilities of being an MP and also being a deputy minister, hopefully the most important thing that I think I've gained is wisdom and experience. Yeah, second question. Do you think that DAP can do better than what they've been doing for the past 50 years? I, I think the change in the DAP started around 2006 when Lim Guan Ning as Secretary General then brought in people like Tony Poa, Hannah Yeo and, and others. And I think that transition process is continuing. You know, I look forward to more younger people joining the DAP from different backgrounds. And definitely, it's something that I think the party is on the right track on. So I have another question, which is actually in the form of a video that I'm going to play for you. Here you go. Hi, Dr. Ong, Suyen here, one of your former intern. So I have three questions. The first question is, what is the most impactful book that you have read that made you decided to make the moves to join politics in the past 10 years? Okay, uh, very easy. To Kill a Mockingbird. I read <laughs> this when I was a student in Singapore. And I think the kind of issues that it brings up with regards to racial inequality, justice in the criminal system, and other very deep issues that I think are relevant to Malaysia is something that still sticks to me. I recommend this book to anyone who is interested in good literature and also wanting to understand racial politics in the Deep South in the US. Second question will be, since you are in the education line right now, what are your plans in mentoring talents for public policy making industry? Oh, so this is very, very simple. My mentoring process will be through the students that will join the PPE program and to give them the best educational experience and exposure to public policy making. And the third one will be, if you are given an opportunity right now, what are the three categories of talents you would like to attract so you could share your insights and shape some lights to guide them better? Okay, so three categories of talents. I would want people who are critical thinkers, who are not afraid to question themselves. Secondly, I think I want people who are able to put themselves out of their comfort zone to try new things. And then probably the third thing would be people with the kind of resilience to be able to carry out difficult things uh, and won't give up so easily. 
Jimmy, it's been such a pleasure to have you. I always end with the same questions. So the first is this. Do you feel like you found your why? Yes, I think I found my why. But the career path that I will continue to evolve in, in terms of enhancing my why, will evolve over time. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? The people that I've impacted, you know, p- people like Suyen and other interns in big and small ways. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Humility, resilience, and intellectual curiosity. And where can people go to find out about you, support you? Go to LinkedIn and also Twitter, I'm OK Man, as well as Instagram, I'm OK Man as well. And I'll leave all the links to the show notes as well. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Continue to think of ways in which you can contribute to the country in value-added ways. And it may not necessarily have to be done in Malaysia. You can do it wherever you are. And that was the end of episode 121. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismawai.com forward slash 121. Now, this interview was recorded in person. So if you'd like to watch the YouTube version of this podcast and all the other episodes before it, just head over to YouTube and look for the So This Is My Why podcast. And do stick around for next Sunday because we'll be meeting an amazing Malaysian entrepreneur who also runs a very, very successful personal finance YouTube. If you want to stick around to learn what it's like to essentially build your own team, work in the creative space and monetize, then that would be a fascinating episode for you. And by the way, we also end the episode by talking about Hershey World which is a very fascinating concept that if you haven't heard, you really should. So do subscribe to this podcast and see you next Sunday.